so I, I'm a very poor replacement for Christopher Cook, uh, but um, oh. <laughs> but so uh, um, we might open it out to, to questions earlier than normal. But uh, we're delighted to have Professor Roger Parker, who, as I know from past experiences, is very erudite on these matters. Um, Roger, uh, bel canto, what does that mean? Well, it means beautiful song or beautiful singing. Um, and it's interesting, it's always one of those words that you hear banded about with uh, Bellini and Donizetti. And I have to say, I'm, I'm a little worried about it. I use it myself sometimes, but there's maybe a slight sense of um, it's not really dramatic, you know, it's just all this, all this beautiful singing. I think the interesting, the, the opera to which it refers least well in some ways is the one you're going to hear tonight. And why is Norma. that? Because, I mean, it's interesting that the, the singer for whom uh, Norma was written was Judith uh, Pasta, and one of the things she was famous for was not having a beautiful voice. She had a rather covered tone, but what was what was really beautiful or what was amazing about her voice was the drama. And very often the drama is something which means you're going to be sacrificing beauty. And um, in all sorts of ways, um, I mean, it, an, another example of this is the most famous Norma of the 20th century was Maria Callas. And she didn't have a beautiful voice. I mean, she had an incredibly, incredibly dramatic voice. Um, <laughs> And she could make you believe in the character, but um, so bel canto is is an inevitable word that's used about this repertory, and it does sort of you know put it together uh, with Donizetti. But I I just don't think Norma is fundamentally about beautiful singing. And uh, I mean we need to talk about the libretto because the libretto of Norma was quite distinctive as well. Yeah, it's interesting with uh, with Bellini, um, the same with Verdi actually, and the same with with Donizetti. It's there the essential creative act for these people was to get the libretto written, and to get, in other words, to get the proportions of the opera right, so they knew where everything was coming. Um, after the libretto is fixed, then there's some sense in which composing the music is just going to be automatic. I mean, it takes them time. But um, the, the, the essential creative struggle for Bellini, the same as for Donizetti, the same as for Verdi, was getting the libretto exactly in shape. And one of the problems with Norma um, was the librettist was Felice Romani, who everyone agreed was the best in town, uh, or the best in Italy. Uh, but he, because he was the best in Italy, he got incredibly overbooked all the time. So he was always terribly late with everything, and there's stories about locking him in rooms until he's finished, you know, an aria and things like that. But he created some kind of tension in the whole thing. But getting the libretto, there is actually the draft libretto of this opera remains in a museum in in Italy, and it's, it's, it's almost unreadable, the, the number of changes that have been made. So certainly the libretto is an absolutely critical bit of this. And, and how do you think you talk about these changes? Um, what was Bellini's judgment on drama, and do you think that informed these changes in the libretto? Yes, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, fundamentally, Ver, uh, fundamentally, Bellini was was a dramatist rather than a musician, um, and uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, the interesting thing when he's going forward and, and and making revisions is actually most of what happens is getting rid of music, getting rid of sometimes very beautiful music. He cuts an enormous amount 
of music out of Norma, uh, which you'd be very surprised that he cut out. Um, but he, he cared fundamentally about the, about the durations of what was going on, not about the, not about the, uh, the beautiful music. So um, there are all sorts of ways in which um, Verdi later on had a, a wonderful uh, dictum about this. He said, a good opera composer needs to know when not to write music. You know, pity Beethoven didn't hear that. <laughs> but, uh, sorry, that was just a jive. Sorry. Oh, I <laughs> I, I just, I mean, I just like to follow up on what you're saying about William Spare. I mean, also, yeah. he, uh, the, he was quite spare in his harmonies and the way the music that he wrote was quite lean, would you say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are one or two moments uh, in this opera where it sort of gets complicated, mostly orchestral introductions yeah. where the harmony gets a bit German, you know, a bit complicated. But most of the time, I mean, the classic kind of, Bellinian way of shaping an aria is very, very simple. You have, you just have the upper strings on a sort of arpeggio figure, the violas sustaining a line, and then the cello's pizzicato. Mm -hmm. And then the wind instruments get added to the viola color. It's a very, very simple and repetitive way of building up the music. Uh, but then on top of that very simple accompaniment, you get an extremely complicated melody rhythmically you know so it's made up of little fragments of, of words all the time so there's a system to what he's doing uh, and it's not about musical complexity definitely it's about again it's about dramatic effect and let's talk about the dramatic effect I mean this is an opera about torn loyalties Romans versus Gauls uh, a, a lover versus a, a former lover uh, a mother and a children a virgin yeah. priestess yeah, and uh, all those, um, you know, you, you imagine Verdi would have loved this, you know, all these confrontations and everything, uh, all these divided loyalties. But the interesting thing is, uh, if you think about it, the only person who really has divided loyalties, all those ones that you mentioned, is Norma. Mm -hmm. You know, Polione, he doesn't have any divide, he's just doing whatever he can, you know, he's... He's, 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 he's leading with he's, what men lead with. Yes, he's putting himself <laughs> about among the druidesses. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and that's what he does, and he doesn't even seem embarrassed, you know, in no, some no. ways. Uh, he's a bit irritated, end. though, when they find yes. out that they're... Mm. Yeah, yeah, when, he's, uh, when, he's, when his mobile phone gets revealed, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, to everyone, says, so find out what's going on. But, no, the interesting thing, the, the unusual aspect of this opera is the way that those conflicts are all generated within Aida's, uh, Aida's presence. I mean, it is... Aida. Norma. Freudian slip, Freudian. Yeah, within Norma's uh, musical presence. I mean, it's, an, it, it's a really extraordinary opera in the sense that usually what Italian operas, opera composers tried to do was divide the roles um, you know, you had to, if you had three principles, you had to give them more or less equal amount of music. But there's no sense of that in Norma at all. Almost every single duet or ensemble num number is led off by Norma, Absolutely. as well as her having... Polione, you know, has one aria at the beginning, and that's sort of it, you yes. know, he doesn't have... He disappears as a character. So everything is concentrated on this, on this one person. And that's, you know, that's an extraordinary kind of risk to take, you know, in an opera house yes, to do that. Yes. It's so dependent, you yes. know, on one, on one character. Yeah. Um, so 
what what do you think Bellini was um, was writing about in, in in the historical sense when when he was talking about Romans and Gauls and was he? I don't. I mean, did you notice any Roman bits in the opera? No, but <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm, th I'm thinking about yeah. was was it a prefigure of Verdi and his his Nabucco and desire for it? This, it's interesting that I mean, I I, I think uh, one of the the the, the fact that it, it's set in the ancient past is something which was very important, actually, and people worried about it at the time, but it's really a scene designer's problem, you know. It's all about what kind of furniture you've got and what kind of backdrop you're going to have and those kinds of things. I don't think there's any... It would be very difficult to think of any part of Norma that has any sense of sort of specific geography about it, I think. I mean, I think it could more or less take place anywhere. There was no musical idea of what Rome might have meant. I mean, there's a kind of, you know, or, or Gaul, for that matter. I mean, the one thing you might say about Norma is uh, that particularly at the beginning of the of the opera, it's got a kind of outdoor feel to it and there's quite a lot of outdoor music going on in it because of its setting. But I don't think there's anything specific about the period. And, and we have to talk about the fact that this was a piece that was beloved by someone who comes as a big surprise for many people when they say, Wagner loved this piece and in fact wrote yeah. an aria for Oroveso. Yes, I mean, Wagner um, conducted the opera um, in the when he was a, 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 an operatic conductor in the 1830s. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and wanted to emulate, you know, the great composer. And Oroveso could probably do with a bit more music in some ways. Um, the reason why Oroveso doesn't have much music is because the bass for whom it was written was having heart problems at the time. <laughs> and they didn't want to overtax him. So it's a bit of a prosaic reason. So, um, and do you the, think it's as simple as he wanted to emulate? Because his music is so we do. From from our, our point of view, we don't look at them and go, "Yes, I can yeah. see the connection between Bellini and Wagner." I think it's because Wagner travelled so far. I mean, if you look at Wagner's earliest operas, particularly *Das Liebesverbot*, then there's a lot of uh, Bellini in it. I would say of the later operas, the most obvious one is *Lohengrin*. I mean, that's the most Italianate, mm -hmm. and it certainly doesn't sound like Verdi. If it sounds like anything, it sounds like Bellini. But I think the fascinating thing about Wagner was that um, he didn't like to admit it in public, but even towards the end of his life, he was going around the house, you know, Cosima's diaries mentioned that, oh, Richard's whistling I Puritani again, you know, in the bath or whatever. And Wagner, there was some talk and he says, oh yes, Bellini's melodies are more wonderful than my dreams. And imagining what Wagner's dreams must have been like, that's quite some... <laughs> quite some uh, compliment, but certainly there, there was a sense in the 19th century um, among non-Italians that Bellini was the one composer that was taken seriously. Uh, and not just by Wagner, but by all sorts of other, but Chopin's an obvious, obvious case, Tchaikovsky, all sorts of others, for whom Verdi was really not possible. Mm -hmm. But Bellini, retained this idea of being a sort of pure romantic in some ways. Um, so very influential. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Roger. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
switching here. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's the late Mr Cook, but alive, I'm happy to say. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I was in. Thank you enormously to Martin Fitzpatrick for, for stepping in. And, of course, always as to you, Roger, too. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Welcome. The second part of this evening's uh, event is going to be musical. Um, would you please welcome our two guests? Martin Fitzpatrick returns wearing a different hat, not an interviewer. And we're also joined by Catherine Young, the mezzo-soprano, who is covering the role of Adel Giza in this evening's performance. Would you please welcome our next two guests? <laughs> i 
Catherine, come and, come and join us here. Um, just tell us what you've been singing. Put, fill, fill, fill a place in the opera. Adult Jesus Aria. Uh, which is near the beginning of the opera where she's, she's basically, she's fallen in love with Polione and she's begging God to help her because she doesn't, she's completely divided about what to do. She's completely in love with him, but she's completely devoted to Norma and her religion. And she's a good girl, Antel Jesus. She's, she's not one of those kind girl. of rivals that we she's should... She's a very good girl. She has, she's an even, it hasn't even crossed her mind that this might happen to her. Mm. She's been extremely devout her entire Life and what for happen. her is the moment when, when suddenly she realises that not only is Norma her rival, but her duties are kind of compromised? Um, I, th I think fairly early on, I would say, in, this, uh, in the rest of it, she makes uh, fairly big um, um, discoveries about herself and how strong her emotions have been. Um, yeah, fairly early on. And how sympathetic is she to Norma and, above all, to Norma and the two children? She's extremely sympathetic. She, she absolutely adores all of them. Um, maybe the children slightly less in this production, you'll see. <laughs> um, but she, she's, she's, she's a very um, devoted young woman. What are, they, what are the challenges <laughs> for you as, as a singer in the role? Um, the adalgesia are extremely rangy, so it, it's, it's marked as a mezzo now, but we were just saying that actually it's, it's um, meant to be sung by a soprano, and it, it goes up to high seas, and, and it goes very low as well. I wouldn't be able to say which. I know I sing it, but I don't. <laughs> Roger, this yeah. is extremely yeah. Sopranos and mezzos are yeah. a little more modern. I think, mm. I mean, the, the interesting thing, this was written for Giulia Grisi, mm -hmm. who was the soprano in I, I Puritani, mm. you know, who goes all over mm. the, the shop, you know. And uh, it's definitely a soprano part. Mm. It's just that people, I think people are so influenced by Aida and, uh, you know, those, those two soprano parts where the, 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 the soprano and the mezzo are singing together. But it's, it, I mean, and, you know, we were talking about this. I mean, many famous mezzos have to transpose those, the yes, duet yes, and they in often, act two because yeah. it just, you know, you can't, you, you can't really sing this as a mezzo. I mean, no. you, need, you need to be a soprano. You, need to, you definitely need to have yeah. the height, yeah. Let me turn to, to Martin. Martin, can I talk to you a little bit about, about the music? Um, if I asked you a very general question, and you may have talked to Roger about this, but let me ask anyway, how would you characterise the sound well that Bellini creates for this particular opera? I mean, what are the characteristics that we shall hear? I mean, we were talking about, um, about the fact that people think it's about beautiful singing, but actually he, he's really very well crafted in the drama of the situation. So um, what I... What the bit that really strikes me is the end of Act One, where where the um, so Polioni comes in to see his current lover and his former lover talking, and that, that's always an awkward situation, I find. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and so so his former lover goes off on one, and um, and the music really ramps up and ramps up, and then all of a sudden the, 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 she's summoned to the altar, and the, the, it's sort of this battle cry, and you you uh, and the way the way he builds up the Act One finale, I think, is is crafted with the very highest order. There's you. There's extraordinary long-limbed melodies. You were talking about Wagner, uh, um, who, as we as we know, conducted the opera in Riga. I mean, there is something quite unique about 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 Bellini's sense of melody, isn't there? I, I think so, and 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 what I think the challenge uh, for for any Norma is that you a you need the drama, but then he writes this 
extraordinarily gossamer music. I mean, Casta Diva, there, there, there's this lightness of touch she, she's, when she's sort of in her trance summoning the goddess. You know, and this is not music that, that Closet Brunhilders will be singing. You know, you, you, need, you, need, you need to have the lightness of touch while, while later on you need, you need heft in the sound. So it's an enormous challenge for a soprano. And is that true, really, of all three principles, Adelgisa and Polyone? Well, as we're saying, as we're saying with uh, Adel Jesus, it, it, the part ranges all over the place, and and Polione also is it, it it sits higher than is comfortable for most tenors, really. It, uh, you know, and and what I'd say about Polione, the challenge for Polione is is that he comes on and is is not dissimilar to Radames. He comes on and he sings he sings an aria, and then you forget about him till the end of the act. Yeah, the interesting thing about uh, about the original Polione, he he wrote this uh, letter to Bellini. This is uh, Donzelli, wrote this letter to Bellini, which is rather charming. He says, well, I can go up to a high G, uh, and after that, everything is falsetto. So the, you know, the, the high C, C would be a falsetto. And then he says, I can do agility, but I'm much, much better going up than going down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's quite honest about it. So. But, but, but Bellini acknowledged that, and he, the way he wrote is incredibly clever. It's just that not many other tenors agree with the first, first proponent. Martin, the last question, I mean, do we, are we guided through Bellini's score with themes that we can associate with the particular characters and indeed with the events that they're caught up with? Um, it's not really a leitmotif, although, although there's sort of, there's, there's a, a, a plangent um, melody for usually around where the children come in that, 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 that sort of that carries through the thing. But, but he's, not, he's certainly not... not going, here comes Norma, that's her theme, really. It's not like that. Martin Fitzgerald, and again, Catherine Young, thank you both very much indeed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our final guest this evening is Charles Edward, who is the designer of this Norma. Will you please welcome Charles Edwards? Am I allowed to say, Charles, that you and I go back as long, longer than anybody else in this room, I yes, should think, to some back extent? back to 19, early 1980s. That's right. The first time I heard the finale of this opera was in Christopher's liberal studies class at the Central School of Art and Design, as it was in those days. So it's actually lovely to 30-odd years later. And you remember the recording, I noticed. Yes. Yeah, the Sutherland, first Sutherland recording. Um, yeah, that was... Charles, yeah, to, to return to, to this evening, have you worked with Christopher Alden regularly before? Yes, we've done about eight productions together, including the Texan premiere of Wozzeck. Well, at least I think it's a Texan premiere. It certainly, I don't think it had been done a lot in Dallas, Texas before. Um, and I've done that piece and Macropolis with him. Uh, and I've also done them with his twin brother. Uh, in different productions, so it's uh, quite an interesting challenge. I've also done work with Christopher here, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and uh, Micropolis case before that. So, yeah, did eight, he, eight shows altogether. Did he have a very clear brief? When the two of you sat down, did, you, did he know what he wanted this piece to look like? Well, some directors you work with do come having prepared a very clear psychology of of production that they want the designer to effectively visualise. With Christopher, it's always been very different. He's a, a deeply collaborative and uh, dis discursive person. He always needs to involve not just myself, but the costume designer, lighting designer, choreographers, a lot in the process. And it's very much, I would say, a blank page that we, we then try to fill ourselves. And we, we, we go away on our own 
and listen to the pieces. And um, I mean, in my case, I'm pretty nuts about opera singers, so I tend to listen to every single recording you can find, including some that probably one shouldn't, um, and really inform myself about the music. Because in a way, for me, the music is what is the catapult. It's not necessarily always the text. Um, and uh, then we come back and discuss it together and uh, glue all our ideas into something. At the heart of the production, as we've seen from the stills here, there is this giant tree, trunk, that sort of stretches across the stage. What was the idea behind that? I mean, clearly this is the, the, the site of the magic, um, the, 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 what, the, which will be gathered with the side, the mistletoe. Yes, it's, um, it's an irminsul, for those of you who know what that is. It's effectively um, a primitive pagan totem, um, which uh, sort of pre, um, certainly pre-Christian cults were often centered around. And um, evidently a, a, was often a, a tree or part of a tree. It was uh, heavily carved with runes. Um, it was incredibly precious. It effectively was a, an altar as well as a totem. And uh, in, in our production, it also becomes a pyre. It becomes a, ultimately a bit like Brynhilda the the uh, end of the opera. I won't give it away to, maybe I shouldn't give it away to those of you who are seeing it this evening, but um, let's say it's not, a, not an entirely, um, it's a slightly smoky end, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, this clearly implies the production identifies uh, Norma, her father, and the other Gauls closely with the kind of natural rhythms of life. Does that mean the Romans are indeed kind of brutal conquerors, or is there another conflict in your mind between these two different cultures? Well, uh, the cultures, uh, right from the start, we attempted to discover, we, we discussed a lot of communities, because it's plainly... Um, at the heart of Norma is this extraordinary character, this uh, elevated matriarchal figure. But there's also the community, which um, when you're doing it at the ENO with the incredible chorus we have here, um, you, are, you have to take that in, into terms. So they actually don't have a huge number of showpiece choral events, but they are an incredibly strong presence. For that reason, you have to identify what that community is. And right from the word go, we, we did research that involved looking into, um, first of all, we started looking at the Quakers, and then we went into the Shakers. Now, I didn't really know this, but the reason why Shakers are called Shakers is partly because of the ecstatic rituals that they, uh, they took, but that formed part of their early services. They were apparently completely manic. And some of the people who see the production um, uh, come back to me and say, my God, the chorus are completely wild and wired and hysterical in this piece. And they do throw themselves around a lot. But it, there was um, a sense, particularly in these early times, of, of these rituals having a, a completely hysterical sort of uba type of uh, um, mania to them. Um, and uh, at, the, at the top of this, uh, this community was this effectively a matriarchal society, often in, in these Shaker communities. Um, Mother Anne Lee was one of the extraordinary characters who was born in, I think she was born, she was born in Manchester, I think, because the Shaker community actually started in, in the UK and then only later went to, the, went to America. Um, and you see a character there who's not far from Norma in terms of the fact that she was deeply in, in, in conflict internally about her own sexual identity, about um, whether or not she should ever get married, 
but she, she didn't have any children. She tried to have children and they, and they all died. Um, so there were re really interesting parallels we found between um, a slightly um, less distant community. It's interesting, Roger, talking about the fact that, in fact, the piece doesn't have Roman music in it and it doesn't have Druid music, whatever that might be. I completely agree. I think the, the, the context is very much more abstract. I, think, I don't think he's writing about realistic political um, uh, uh, tales in the way that perhaps Verdi was. And I think it's quite important, therefore, for us to find a context that isn't about sort of togas and mistletoe in perhaps the most conventional way, but actually explores it in a way that perhaps just brings it a little closer to our own time and, and makes it a little bit more relevant without it turning into a modern dress show, which has another form of alienation, which people have sometimes. Charles, you're sitting beside the model. Yes. Um, are we allowed to have a look? Oh, yes. and, and can you tell us a bit about it? Handmade by me. Um, I'm a bit of a believer in, in, in handcrafts. And in fact, one of the things that I think our production is, is about is about um, the difference between a community which is based in a very agrarian, um, pre-mechanized, pre-industrialized um, world. A fragile, as fragile as practically any kind of society is, um, very fragile environment, um, one that's beginning perhaps to fall apart. It's, it's, it's belief and its um, focus on this, putting all its eggs in one basket, this one Norma lady, um, is plainly unreliable in that she has been unable to resist the temptations of the Romans. Um, I've, I made this thing myself. I believe in always uh, making my models three-dimensionally myself and not computer generating them or doing all of that. I, don't, I can't get a grip on space and things like that when I do it. So it's quite a, yeah, it's a long process to get how, there. How long does it take you? Um, anything up to two, three years. Um, depends how many interruptions there are to the process and whether you, you, you do occasionally reach, you know, non sequiturs and you simply can't get any further and you have to go back and throw everything out of the model and start again. So on one level, you've got something which is a very precious piece of handcraft work, but you've, and, you, and you can only really understand it if it's built to a relatively high standard of accuracy. But at the same time, you might have to throw the whole thing out. And with the Aldens, both of them, especially David, I have to say, one has to be very able to just throw the whole thing out and start again, because they're, they don't mince their words. Now, now, <laughs> now that you tell me that this could be three years' work, the, the question I was going to ask you has a, a, a terrible ring to it. I mean, there must be a terrifying moment, I think, when you have to show the model to not only the people who are going to be involved with the production, apart from Christopher, who's already seen it, but to the others who are the, the management, if you like, the senior figures in the house. You know, your, your whole investment is contained in, in, a, in, a, in an hour or whatever meeting. Is it a chilling moment? Um, it can be. I generally try to have some kind of discussion with the management of the company uh, well in advance of submitting anything. There's usually a reason why they've asked me to design it or the director to direct it. They have a, a, an agenda about the kind of approach they want to take to the piece to some extent. Um, but um, it's always good to have effectively broken the ice a little before you actually show them something that you've spent three years making. Um, but I've had experiences where it's, where it's really distressed and shocked the, the people who have commissioned me to do it, and we've sort of 
been sent away to rethink it. Um, very rarely. Usually, um, it's actually rather exciting because one isn't just handing something over as if one's designed somebody's bathroom for them. One's actually entering into a collaboration and everything that that company does from stage management to all the people in all the various departments, that's, it's a collaboration that never stops. Um, it doesn't even stop during the performances. It should always be alive. That's why we do live theatre. Charles, this is a shared production from Opera North with the English National Opera, and I think mm. there's another opera house in Europe. Um, presumably, each of those houses has a different kind of stage, different kind of facilities. Uh, do you adapt and change as you go, or do you plan what the, the show shall look like, in this sense, on the model, and make certain it fits everywhere it's got to be? Yes, I mean, this was originally a co-production between Chemnitz, which is out in former eastern Germany, and Leeds, which both have relatively small stages. Um, we expanded it for this theatre because uh, if we hadn't, we'd be getting lots of justifiable letters from ladies and gentlemen like yourselves saying we couldn't see the side of the stage because the frame that we're viewing it through was too small. So we have to be very careful about that. Um, it's, so it's been slightly expanded. The tree hasn't been expanded, though, I believe. There's not an inch being added to the tree. Um, but it's... It, it, it's, it's increasingly part of my life that productions that are generated in one city then have to travel to another. It's part of the economics of what we do nowadays. Opera is increasingly expensive to, to present. Um, but it's also interesting to actually have a chance to present it to different communities. And the community we presented it to in Leeds is completely different to the community we presented it to in Chemnitz and then in Bordeaux in France, although the food is very good. And then t t in London, it has a different, um, a completely different, uh, it lands on a, di on a different sense of, uh, group of sensibilities, especially as we're doing it in English, which for me is vital. I, I was lucky enough to do the Lucia that we did here a few years ago. And it's interesting talking again to Roger that, um, I mean, it's tricky, technically tricky, to make bel canto work in English, but it wasn't written for an audience that didn't understand the, the words that they were hearing. It was written for an Italian audience. And for that reason, I think it has an important, there's an important part of presenting it here is that we, we have a chance to do it in English. Charles Edwards, thank you very much You're indeed. Welcome. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time, as we always do in hand at the end. If you would like to ask questions of any of our guests, please do put your hand up and the roving microphone will find you. And we have a question over there. Thank you. Um, I, yes, uh, coming back to the point you just made at the end there, I was going to ask uh, Roger, at the beginning, he commented about the importance of the libretto and the relationship with the music and, uh, and how those two fitted together. And I wondered what you feel about uh, an opera being sung and then in a different language where you haven't quite got that same relationship. Do you lose yeah, I, well, um, you obviously do in any um, in any translation. Um, we were talking about this before. I mean, the peculiar problem with Bellini is that actually his normal mode of linking the words to the music is in very, very small segments with lots of word repetitions going on and on and on. And that means that actually finding the appropriate English is much harder than it would be for Puccini or something like that. So there are particular problems um, with, with Bellini, particular technical problems, um, which, are, which are really, really quite 
quite difficult and I think quite unique uh, to him. So there is a there is a way in which uh, in which it, it it presents these unusual difficulties. But on the other hand, it's certain that the reason that. Bellini's word setting is like that is because he cared deeply about the sense of the words. He wanted the words to be heard at all times and understood immediately. So it's a delicate balance and it's a rather, it's yeah, it's difficult technically. I think uh, I was lucky enough to be in, in rehearsals in the room when we were working on this and one of the challenges for George Hall who, who translated it is that, um, as Roger Amshaw would say, is some of the phrases are incredibly long and where you breathe in a phrase and where you have to, if it's translated, um, is completely different from where you'd breathe in it, in the phrase, if, it, if you were singing in the original language. So just keeping this, this immense, um, long-breathed and long-limbed phrase structure intact is a, that's a big challenge, I think. I think, I mean, an another thing, you just, um, which is almost impossible to do, is you've got to pay attention to the sense of the words. But with Bellini, you must pay attention to the sound of the words as well. So the fact that casta diva begins with an R sound is important. But, uh, you know, what, what does it go? Chaste? It's a virgin it goddess in this, so there's virgin. no A. We yeah. did actually once... Uh, think that maybe what we should just say is it would be a comment on John McMurray's job, which is to cast a diva. <laughs> but then we thought that was too much of a joke. <laughs> Do we have another question? Does anyone else like to ask a question of our guests? Yes, the microphone is on its way, sir. I just wanted to say something in defense of translations. That's Wagner wrote a letter to a Mil Melbourne fan uh, saying that he approved of them. Yeah, well, he was, he was um, somebody who wrote his own libretti. Absolutely. I think somebody who, who felt that the... I mean, the, as, as Roger was saying, yeah. it, it was always about getting the libretto right. And you read the letters of Puccini, Verdi, Bellini, any of them, Mozart, to Da Ponte, you, you read an incredible act of bullying, usually, and, and, and kicking people to get things on deadlines and everything. So the text came first. Pretty much yeah. regardless. I mean, a really good example of that is um, Verdi had a lot of his operas uh, translated into many languages, and French he knew quite well. And you look at the French translation of Falstaff or something like that, and the music uh, got sacrificed yeah. <laughs> when doing that. In musical rhythms, he didn't care about at all. He cared about some verbal immediacy there I in mean, a actually, new language. Actually, yeah. I, I was party to the first drafts of, of George's translation of Bellini, and, and uh, he, I think he did a fantastic job. But one, one of the things that was that he needed the liberty to do was change the rhythms. And it was only, he, to start off with, he'd, he'd been religious about writing the words that is precisely to the rhythms of Bellini. And, and I said, no, 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 if, if the sense means that you, we need to add a quaver here or, or get rid of a note there, then be free. And, th yeah. and that were certainly, in the, as you're saying, in these short-breathed recitative passages, it really helped. Do we have time for one more question? Anyone who would like to ask our final question of the evening? In the front row. I can't speak for anybody else, but uh, I'm here because I'm fed up of concept opera without a concept. So I was very pleased to hear your concept for this opera. Um, anachronistic shows where you have modern furniture in something that's supposed to be primitive, are you aware of how alienating it is to modern audiences and can English National Opera afford anachronistic concepts? 
It's um, well, certainly not an intention to alienate people. I mean, the intention is actually to bring people closer to something that might be abstract and possibly a little um, difficult to grasp, which is, as we were talking about, the, the context of this piece definitely, I, I feel, is. Um, that's all one ever, all I ever seek to do is to bring the audience closer to it. Um, I don't know I th what, I think, what I mean, to say look, about an that. Another, another thing to say is um, you are going to have to make some interpretation of the time period here. Um, you know, in 1830, would you want to go back to what the 1830 thought the Romans looked like uh, if we know that the Romans looked different from that? I mean, it, if you try for visual authenticity, you are always going to have to make compromises with it. Yeah. I think there is no such thing as an authentic visual performance. I don't think that can ever happen. Yeah, I, I, I'd also I absolutely agree with Roger. Our, our idea of what the Romans looked like is different from the way that the... 1930s and the 1830s and the 1730s thought the Romans looked like. So we have to be very careful when we use words like anachronistic because um, the anachronism is of our time, not of the time of the, of, the pro of the production. So are we wanting it to be when Bellini wrote it or are we wanting to be, well, what time is Norma written in? It's, it's not, there is not a specific century uh, designated to Norma. So it's very difficult to be anachronistic when there isn't a century uh, allocated. I'm going to have a, a last one because I think this is a really interesting question. Mm. Go and look at portraits of Kemble, Keane, even Garrick, playing Roman plays, playing the Scottish play. In the Scottish play, he wears an 18th century smart gentleman's dress with court shoes with a, a small tartan plaid thrown over his shoulders. You know, where's the authenticity there? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed um, for being with us. And thank you above all to our four guests. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>